thank you, Father, for the day, for the beauty of this day, and each person who is here with us this morning. Each person, Father, is someone you have crafted by your hands in the womb, as you say, and have brought to be in this world and to be in this church, to be here, Father, for some good and eternal purpose. We receive all who are here as brothers and sisters in Christ, those who have come to know him by faith. And for any, Father, who have yet to know him, we receive them as well as men and women called to hear the truth. Help us, Father, deliver that truth, both here and elsewhere around the neighborhood, that we may serve people with the truth of the word reflected in our lives so that we are not merely those who would speak truth, but those who would live it and demonstrate it so that we might be ambassadors. And, Father, in the word this morning, we study important things, deep things according to your word, things that are eternal in their purposes as well. But let us not think of these things, Father, simply as things that have come from afar and from some distant past. Let us think of them as things that are for us today and and true for us because they were meant for us. Help us see the truth today, Father, by your Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are nearing, in the book of Genesis, the end of the toledot, that's a Hebrew word for genealogy, the genealogy of Isaac. Now, you've been focused with me on Jacob for so long now that you've probably lost track of the fact that we've actually been studying the genealogy of Isaac in this section of Genesis. Each patriarch takes a turn in the spotlight in Genesis. That spotlight ends when the patriarch dies. And then the spotlight transfers to his son, to the one who has the birthright. Isaac's still alive at this stage of the story. He's about to die. His life's about to come to an end. When it does, the story we've been following will shift from the family of Isaac to the family of Jacob, and particularly to two in the family of Jacob. That is Judah and Joseph. Before we reach the moment of Isaac's death, though, we have one more tragedy to study in Jacob's life. Last week we heard of another tragedy, that of Deborah, Rebekah's nurse. That death of Deborah provided Jacob an opportunity to mourn his mother, Rebekah, who he was not present when her death came. So he mourned her by proxy, by mourning over the death of Deborah, the nurse who would have nursed him. But now we're going to learn of an even more traumatic death for Jacob, one that hits even closer to home. In Genesis 35, verse 16, we see one last tragic death in the life of Jacob, prior to the end of his father's genealogy. Start reading there, verse 16. Then they journeyed from Bethel, and when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth, and she suffered severe labor. When she was in severe labor, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for now you have another son. It came about as her soul was departing, for she died, that she named him Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. Jacob set up a pillar over her grave. That is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. Last week, Moses told us that Jacob finally received the blessing of the covenant. Do you remember that? In the Lord's earlier appearances, he had always said to Jacob, you will be blessed. But the promise to bless him and the promise to receive the inheritance had never fully been transferred to him at any of those earlier points. But at the point last week where Jacob obeyed the word of the Lord and his vow and returned to Bethel as he promised he would do, then the Lord now consummates the promise with the blessing, with a specific transfer of the inheritance right to Jacob. 
And now that Jacob has obeyed the Lord's instructions and kept his vow and received the blessing of the covenant, now that his obedience has been made complete, now there comes a movement from Bethel down southward toward where his father lives. We're going to look more at that in a moment. Jacob is going to dwell where his father is living, down in a place called Mamre. And at that point, the fullness of this promise comes to bear. You'll see that as we get there. But before he reaches this place, on the road to Ephrath, we see this tragic event happen in Jacob's life. Ephrath is just another name for Bethlehem. And he's on the road. You notice in verse 16, it says there's some distance from Ephrath. And Rachel goes into labor on this road. This is news to us for two reasons. First, it's the death of Rachel, which is the main point of the event. But it's just news to us that she's pregnant. That hasn't been given to us at any point earlier in the text. Remember, Jacob's over 100 years old at this point. Rachel hasn't been pregnant for 15 years. And she could only get pregnant that one time with Joseph up until this point. Remember how difficult it was for her to have children. So this pregnancy must have been a big surprise for everyone. And a pleasant one, we assume. But it would have been dangerous for a woman of her age to carry a child. And of course, being Jacob's favorite, I'm sure he was particularly concerned for Rachel. Remember back when she was warring with Leah, back when they lived in Laban's home? They were warring over the affections of their husband, Jacob. Remember that she declared that she was going to die if she didn't have a son. Well, soon after that, she had her first child, Joseph. But those prophetic words are going to come back to haunt her here. Because as she goes into labor, things go wrong. We're told she suffers severe labor. And that labor likely would have caused internal bleeding. We don't know for a fact, but we suspect that she died from hemorrhaging, from the bleeding that can accompany a very severe labor. The text says Rachel could even feel her soul departing her. That's a sensation that actually has some scientific foundation. People who have come close to bleeding to death have reported a similar kind of sensation, the sense that their strength, their spirit is leaving them. I knew one friend of my brother's who, in an accident, shot himself in the neck. It grazed his neck enough to cut a vessel, and he starts to bleed to death. He almost died. He's not a believer, but his own testimony echoes this kind of sentiment. His own testimony was that as he was close to death, it wasn't just that he was feeling weak or lightheaded. He literally felt this spiritual dimension starting to leave his body, he thought. And then, of course, he lived through the experience. But in the way it's described here, it would seem to suggest a bleeding-to-death incident. In Rachel's case, there is no resuscitation. She dies. As she lays dying, she chooses a name for her son. This has been the pattern, remember? Who's named all of Jacob's sons? Well, to date, it's been nothing but the women naming the sons, either Leah or Rachel. In fact, they were using the naming of each of these sons as a way of fighting with one another. Remember, the names themselves were intended to be a jab at the other woman in many cases. Jacob, for his part, has seemed completely disinterested in the process. That's not traditional. In this age, in a patriarchal culture, the father reserved the right to name children and would often be the one to name the children, if not always. But in this case, Jacob, he normally gave no attention to the naming of his sons. He left it to his wives. Rachel now names this son Ben-Onai, which means son of sorrow. Ben is son in Hebrew, son of sorrow. Because she knows she's mortally injured. She knows she's not going to see this son. How painful must that be? A father can never understand this, I guess. But a mother can experience the joy of bringing a child into the world 
by her own body, the joy of a son in this case. But what would it be for a woman to know as that process is completing that she is not going to live to see that son past the moment of birth? But yet how comforting is it for believers to know that that separation is only temporary? And it must have been the case that it consoled her here. After she dies, Jacob decides to rename the child. Now, that's his prerogative. He's the patriarch. He can do what he wants. What's unusual is he's never shown this interest before. And yet here he steps in and he chooses a new name. Jacob feels obviously a great attraction to this child because it's Rachel's child. And moreover, because she died in giving this child to him. And so he names it Benjamin. We say Benjamin. Benjamin simply means son, Ben, of my right hand. The right hand position in Eastern culture is the highest place of honor. That's why you hear in the scripture, Jesus said to be seated at the right hand of his father, indicating that the father has placed Jesus in the most honoring position he can put him in. In fact, that's still protocol today in the military. Did you know that? If you've spent any time in the military, you know what I'm talking about. If two soldiers walk side by side, the highest ranking individual always walks on the right. That's military decorum, military protocol. You and I may never know that unless we've been in the military, but I can assure you that you'll always see the higher ranking officer or enlisted walking on the right of the person who is lower ranking. And they do this instinctively. I was trained in the Air Force to think like this from an early point in in service. And so you're always noting who's got the highest rank and you shuffle your positions to put them always to the right. It's just become protocol. So Jacob names Benjamin here with a name that tells everyone in the family that this will be a special child in Jacob's heart. This child sits at the right hand of Jacob. Now, what's interesting about this is it reminds us of a pattern Jacob has shown throughout his life as a father. This pattern to show favoritism. And while it's natural to some degree for all parents to find some particular interest in one child over another, we also know instinctively that we don't want to advertise that difference, if there is one, among the children. If we find something about one child that appeals to us more so than others, that's for us. To share it with the family would only create insecurities and jealousies within the family. Jacob has never seen any problem with showing that. Quite to the contrary, he goes out of his way to show that difference. With Benjamin, that difference, that unwillingness on his part to shield the family from his sinful desires and his sinful preferences, that fact is going to lead to the story of Joseph. In the way he favors Benjamin, it ultimately becomes a tool that Joseph will use to bring the family of Jacob into repentance. Showing once again that God can turn sin to good. Moving forward, Jacob mourns now for Rachel and places her in the ground, burying her at the place where she died. The text says Rachel was buried on the road to Bethlehem, but yet while they were still some distance from the town. In 1 Samuel 10, verse 2, this location of Rachel's burial is said to be in an area that belongs to the tribe of Benjamin. Now that makes some sense because the tribe received as its inheritance a area of land in which their own father was born. Remember, Benjamin is the only one of the sons born in the land. All 11 otherwise were born outside the land. So when the land was divvied up, Benjamin, the tribe, received the land of their father's birth. What's interesting, though, is that land of Benjamin is totally inside of the land of Judah. So Judah completely surrounds Benjamin. Benjamin is a piece within Judah. Later in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31, 15, we're told that Rachel's burial place is in a place near Ramah, which is 
in the tribe of Benjamin, in the area of Benjamin. Why am I mentioning all this? Well, today the location of her tomb is lost. It's been gone. We don't know where it is. Though the gravestone itself was still standing in Moses' day, because he refers to it here saying that it was the place that's still standing. We also know, because Jeremiah references it, that it was still available to be seen in Jeremiah's day. That means it stood for 1,300 years. 1,300 years. Now, that's a testimony to the kind of grave that Jacob built for Rachel. Think about it. What kind of structure can stand for 1,300 years in the desert and still be notable enough that everyone knows what it means and remembers where to find it? It's some huge rock, some gravestone so big, you're not going to move it easily. It's not going to be knocked down easily. It's not going to be worn away easily. That's an important thing to remember because ever since that day, men have recognized the importance of giving their wives a big rock, so, so to speak. Now, in all seriousness, if you've traveled to the, to the area of Israel, Bethlehem, and you've done the typical tourist scene of going to the locations they tell you to go to, one of the stops on that tour may have been the burial location of Rachel. Well, I hate to break it to you, and I hope you didn't pay much for this, but that's not where she's buried. That's complete folklore. And it's false folklore because we know that in the place it's been said to be today, it's south of Bethlehem near the city. But in the text of Scripture, it's on the road from Bethel to Bethlehem, which is north. And it's still some distance from the city in Ramah. And Ramah is quite a ways away north from Bethlehem. Further evidence of how tradition often replaces biblical truth, given enough time and enough biblical illiteracy. So when you go to the Holy Land and study some or visit some of these locations, just be aware that for many of them, it's not actually true where they're being located. Now, the 12 sons of Israel are alive. The family is complete. And with the next generation in place, it's time for Moses to address the outstanding question of where the seed promise goes next. Now, we have talked in here in chapters past about this concept of the seed promise. And because it's been a little while since it's come to the foreground, I'm not going to spend a lot of time, but I want to take a couple of minutes just to remind you of what we're meaning when we say the seed promise. When God appeared to Abraham in chapter 15 and delivered the promise that would include the promise to bring a seed, a Messiah, Paul tells us from Galatians, who would ultimately be the reconciliation of men to God. When God made that promise to Abraham in chapter 15, he told Abraham this would be part of an inheritance. That inheritance included other things like a people and a land. But the seed promise was part of the inheritance. Now, when God gave Abraham this inheritance, what he was doing was he was changing the nature of Abraham's estate. Where before Abraham just had the kind of estate that everyone has some goats, some sheep, piece of land, some servants. What God did was take that earthly inheritance and add on top of it an eternal spiritual promise, which was also inherited and passed down the line from Abraham. But because God now put his stamp on this and added his promise, he gets to decide who receives the inheritance. No longer will Abraham's inheritance be determined strictly by the rules of custom or culture. They will be determined by God alone. And we've seen this playing out. Abraham's Son Isaac received that inheritance, not the older son Ishmael, who by culture and custom should have received it. 
Then from the next generation, Isaac, it's been passed to Jacob, the younger, not Esau, the older. And God told us through Romans that that was because God chose it to be that way so that we would understand God was dictating these things. So there is this promise, this seed promise, I've called it, that's been made a part of the inheritance of the family of Abraham. And now that we're at the point where Isaac is about to die, the question comes to the foreground again. Where is this seed promise going next in the family of Jacob? Because, see, Jacob has 12 sons. Up until now, we've only had two to worry about. And so there was a dichotomy. There was a a question of which one. Now you got 12. And who's going to be the one in the 12 to carry the seed promise forward? And complicating matters is Jacob's 12 sons come from two wives. And I realized that there were two concubines, but legally the children of the concubines belong to the wives that owned them. So for legal purposes, there's only two mothers in view legally. So which of those two mothers' sons become the seed promise? Because they both have an oldest son. We have to ask that question. So how will God decide who receives the Lord's promise here? To help answer that question, Moses records one more short story about the behavior of one of Jacob's sons, that being Reuben, before moving to the issue of Isaac's death. So we get that in verse 21 and 22. I'm going to continue from 21 and 22 all the way through to the end, reading the rest of the chapter so we can see how it all fits together. Verse 21. Then Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. It came about while Israel was dwelling in the land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now there were 12 sons of Jacob, the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, then Simeon and Levi and Judah and Issachar and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin, and the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maid, Dan and Naphtali, and the sons of Zilpah, Leah's maid, Gad and Asher. These are the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padamaram. Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre of Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac have sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, an old man of ripe age. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. So Jacob and his family eventually end up in a region just outside the town of Bethlehem. I want you to notice, once again, Jacob is wandering here. He doesn't actually go into Bethlehem. That's such a consistent image in scripture that these men remained wanderers because in Genesis 15, God told them in his promise, they were to be wanderers, sojourners in a land that was not theirs for 400 years. Their proof of faith in that promise is that they chose to live according to it. That is to remain wanderers. They go to a place outside of the city called the Tower of Eder. Now, that refers to a watchtower, literally a structure that's built tall enough that men can stand in the top of it and look out, survey the the pasture lands nearby. These were set up in the wilderness outside towns so that shepherds could watch over their flocks against the prospect of thieves coming in and stealing sheep off of the herd. If your herd was large enough and you stayed on the ground level, you could see the sheep on your side of the herd, but you may not know what's going on on the back side of the herd. So if I get up in a watchtower, I can survey the whole land. So these watchtowers, by their very nature, are not in cities. They're set out in the countryside. And so the land around this uh, watchtower doesn't really have a name, except it's named after the watchtower that's in the area. So it's the watchtower of Eder. 
While in this place, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, decides to lay with Rachel's maid, Bilhah. Now, that's a disturbing comment, and it's seemingly inserted here without connection to the rest of the storyline, but it has tremendous meaning, and it fits right here for a good reason. A man's concubine, Bilhah in this case, remember, she's neither wife nor slave. She's, she's actually somewhere in between. She has greater privileges than a slave, but she does not have the privileges of a wife. So as long as Rachel lived, she formed a surrogate mother for her barren master, for Rachel. She would have been also a handmaiden to Rachel, a general attendant for her needs. So now that Rachel's gone, Rachel just died, as you noted earlier in the text. Now that Rachel's gone, Bilhah is now part of Jacob's estate. He belo- she belongs to Jacob, whereas before she technically belonged to Rachel. And she still has this status of a semi-wife but with this diminished importance. She was the mother, as we know, of two of uh, Jacob's sons, specifically Dan and Naphtali. It seems then that as you look at this event with Reuben, it's unlikely that this is the case of simply rape or just pure lust on Reuben's part. Remember, Bilhah is 30 years older than Reuben, and she's the mother of two of Reuben's brothers. You don't find this easily traced to simply one man having... Uh, an urge he can't control, though I certainly don't put it past him. Uh, the timing of the event seems to suggest to us that there's something more going on here. He's waited till Rachel's gone, it would appear, to make this move. In the culture of the day, if you took another man's wife, or in this case a concubine, uh, in any case, either kind, it was a way of challenging their authority, of challenging their power. It was a form of conquest over that man to have taken his wife. Reuben, therefore, would seem to be, and and let me say this, even if it was nothing but a pure act of lust, he knows the culture. Reuben would have understood what he was communicating to his father. That's why I say he would not have taken this step lightly. He would have known its implications. He would have understood the message he was sending to dad. And the message is, I am your superior now. I am ready to replace you. So Reuben now, himself over 30 years old, is probably impatient for the inheritance Perhaps he assumed that he could just do whatever he pleased with the maid since one day she would be his by rights of inheritance. And being firstborn, he assumed he held the birthright. And by custom, he did. So he just took a down payment, if you will, on his inheritance. That relationship, though, constitutes a terrible injustice against Jacob, according to the customs of the day. His action is actually very similar to something you know very well from the New Testament. What Reuben is doing here is essentially the same thing that the prodigal son does out of Luke chapter 17 or chapter 16. When in chapter 16, the prodigal son goes to his father and demands his portion of the inheritance. In effect, what he's saying to his dad is you're as good as dead to me because I want what comes only when you die. And so from my point of view, you are dead. Give me my inheritance. That's how Reuben is communicating to his father. Ironically, this also reminds us of a young Jacob who went before his father thinking he was near death and asked for the birthright through deception. The most important part of that whole account, though, is the words Israel knew about it. Moses's focus in Genesis is always the birthright and the seed promise from start to finish and where that promise goes in each generation. That's the focus. Notice Moses uses the name Israel here, not Jacob. 
You remember we noted that that was something to watch for in the text? When you see the man Jacob called by his new godly name, it's Moses' way of indicating that Jacob is being led by the Spirit. He's working in the Spirit as opposed to in the flesh. You'll note how rarely this name is actually applied. But in this case, it is. Out of the blue, Israel knew about it. Here you see the Lord influencing Jacob or Israel to know of Reuben's actions, to take stock of them, to understand them. So that later, in the very last part of Genesis, chapter 49, Jacob will act based on what he knew here. It will change what Jacob does when he gives out the birthright. Eventually, Jacob will be on his deathbed handing out the blessings, assigning to his children who will carry the birthright forward in the family. And under the influence of the Holy Spirit in that moment, Israel will skip over Reuben for the birthright, even though he would have been natural in receiving it as the firstborn. We already know he's going to skip over Simeon and he's going to skip over Levi because of the events we read about already in Shechem. That will leave the fourth in line, Judah, as the next to receive the birthright. So what you see here now is Moses giving us, the reader, this crucial piece of information to help explain the transfer of the birthright from Reuben to someone else in the family of Jacob. Finally, as we end 35, notice Moses moves, even in the same verse, as we've chosen to break out chapter and verse, even in the same verse as we hear about Reuben's exploits, we already see the writer moving into the genealogy. That's a wonderful indication that the translators, the interpreters have done in helping us, the reader, appreciate the connection between Reuben and the impact this is having on the genealogies in the book. Because the, the nature of this connection is that with Reuben's actions done and Israel knowing about it, now the family of God, the family of Israel, is changed as a result. Look at the list of sons. You have the nation of Israel now, a nation of future kings, a nation of future tribes that have been produced out of one man through whom the world itself will be blessed by a seed to be brought that is the Messiah. All of this is a fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham and to Isaac and now Jacob. And then this reunion between father and son, Jacob now arriving in Mamre 12 years before his father dies. This is the place where they've sojourned, Abraham and Isaac, for their whole life. And at this point, the reason of his return is to prepare to receive the inheritance. You remember the last time that Isaac and Jacob were together? From the best we can tell, the last time these two were together was that moment in the tent after he deceived his father. Jacob was deceiving his father in an attempt to gain the very promise that he's now been given by his obedience to God. Isaac, at that point, if you remember, he was choosing to ignore the Lord and trying to bless the wrong son with the seed promise. And now 40 years have passed, 30 years, sorry, 30 years have passed since that time. And now you see Jacob returning home for the first time since that event. That is significant because it's bringing to close Isaac's life, showing the faithfulness of God. Jacob has found his way all the way back to his father's home, lives with him for the last 12 years so that on the day his father dies, he will actually receive the thing he's been blessed with, the inheritance of his father and the promises that come with it. You don't get the inheritance till your father dies. Only after... 30 years in which he leaves with nothing but a staff, comes back with a, a wealth of property, 12 kids and the respect of his brother, or at least the deference of his brother. 
And he has full assurance of the promises of God. Now and only now are things brought to conclusion with him and his dad. In a sense, each patriarch exists in the story of Genesis just long enough to connect the dots between the prior patriarch and the next patriarch. Once that connection has been made, the story comes to its conclusion. So we followed the Toledot of Isaac by watching how the seed promised son, that is Jacob, came full circle. Tried to get something the wrong way, left, learned the hard way how to obey God, worked his way back circuitously until he arrived at his father's home again, reconciled and receives the promise he sought. When you think about Isaac's Toledot, the story of Isaac overall, it's actually very simple. In fact, you can remember Isaac more for how he is connected to his father and how he's connected to his son than for anything he himself actually does in the story of Genesis. Isaac, you can remember in this way. He was the son nearly sacrificed by his father, and he was the father deceived by his son. His role is really a connecting point. Now, Jacob's story, which is what we're now going to officially begin, the genealogy of Jacob, it doesn't end until his death in chapter 49. But after his father dies, all attention moves from Jacob to his sons, to Judah and to Joseph particularly. And they all play instrumental roles in fulfilling God's promises as God delivered them to Abraham in Genesis 15. To finish today, I want to give you one final picture shown in the story of both Isaac and Jacob. Abraham is a picture of the father. And Isaac himself is named in Scripture as a picture or a type of Christ. Well, you see there's three, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, father, son. It leaves you wondering, well, is Jacob a picture of the Holy Spirit? It would seem perfect symmetry if that were to be the purpose, right? And we have to remember, of course, that all three of these men were sinful. Their sinful qualities are not the part of the picture. But it's other aspects of their life from which God draws the picture. Isaac, most obviously, was the son sacrificed on the mountain. So what is there about Jacob's life that could picture the Holy Spirit? Well, there's one way that comes to mind for me. Before Jacob comes along, you have just the father and just the son. But after you reach Jacob, the family of Abraham divides into multitudes, into many. And that reflects the role of the Spirit in the way God uses him in the world. There was always the father. By the Spirit come a family of believers who join in the family of God. Jacob's role was to take the birthright, the seed promise that had started with his grandfather and come to him. And he was to take that seed promise and distribute it into a nation, into nations of men, and to populate the world ultimately with that seed promise. And in the same way, the Spirit is working through us today to do that work, to communicate the truth, to take what God has promised and deliver it into the nations of the world. As we leave today, as we finish this story and get ready to start what I think will be one of the most interesting sections of the entire book of Genesis, that being of Judah and Joseph, prefaced, of course, by that fascinating genealogy chapter that John is looking forward to for next week, I'd like you to give some thought to the reality of that picture. If Jacob is truly a picture of the work of God through men to multiply his promises then are we living it that way? Are we living in that way in our own walk today? Are we fulfilling that purpose in our own way today? It's one thing to be in the family of God. It's another thing to be out adding to the family of God, that our hearts are predisposed toward that outcome, to seeing our purpose in this world as one to represent God's promises in the fashion that God permits us to do in the whatever gifts and, and opportunities he gives us for the outcome of adding to the number as God would permit. 
Keep that in your minds this week as we have a chance to meet with family and friends. Perhaps you're going to spend your Thursday sitting around a table in which you and your spouse are the only believers at that table. If that's going to be your experience, then let's see what we can do to convey the truth of his promises and reach perhaps somebody who's dear to us. Let's go in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the reminder that your promises are the things we rest in. Thank you for the reminder that your power and sovereignty is always at work to move your promise forward. And thank you for the privilege that it might be ours to have at times to represent you to one more person in this world to bring that promise into one more heart. Let Oak Hill Bible Church, Father, be a a family of believers known as much for what they do and how they represent you as for what we may believe or practice. Send us out from here, Father, with a heart to receive those you would send us and to disciple those who come to know you and to reflect you in all that we say and do, particularly in this time of holiday and family gatherings. We pray, Father, that you would give us a harvest and bring us back next week to continue in this study. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.